0: Welcome back, thanks for joining us at Homebase Nation. This is Ron Hirschberg, your host. I first learned of Dr. Eric Goralnik talking with my colleague, Dr. Jerome Lee, who has been championing efforts in Boston for months to help Ukrainian clinicians and others via his role in the disaster medical assistance team at Mass General Hospital. Jerome told me about Eric's innovation with other Brigham and Women's Hospital colleagues in expediting YouTube videos to directly train civilians and medical professionals disaster medicine techniques. We're talking about stopping acute bleeding, addressing what is called C-burn or chemical, biological, radiological nuclear events and other trauma and acute medical needs.
1: And she called me up and said, what are we gonna do about Ukraine to stop the bleed? I said, well, let's, let's think about what we can do. And we identified three really straightforward things. One is, make a series of videos to train and empower laypersons in Ukrainian put them on YouTube and amplify them significantly so that people on the ground can be empowered with these life-saving skills we had learned from you know our research from other research leaders that you know one way to teach this is in a classroom but there's also other modalities like potentially learning on a phone-based application there had not really been work on videos but we had talked about it and you know, we, we just went for
0: it. This is just incredible work, and needless to say, I asked Jerome for an introduction. I then learned that Dr. Gorelnik is an emergency room doctor who is not only the medical director of access and network development at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and associate professor of Harvard Medical School, he also serves as lead faculty for the HMS Civilian-Military Collaborative. As a Navy veteran, Eric began his road to service at the Naval Academy in Annapolis, and he got the medicine bug when he realized that there were many ways to help and serve people in need. His interest had been peaked around the dinner table initially when when his dad, also a Navy veteran, would talk about his own military experience. And he was also inspired to serve back when he was a kid growing up in LA. You
1: know, the thing that drove me to service and drives me today and will drive me in the future is when I was in Hebrew school uh, in Los Angeles, my Hebrew school teacher told us about her experience in a concentration camp and being liberated by an American soldier. And uh, I knew at that point that uh, I had a duty to serve, and that was, you know, service in the military, uh, serve my, you know, fellow uh, men and women um, uh, out there in any way that I could.
0: Eric is the kind of guy you want to have next to you, whether you're preparing for or responding to an emergency. He is calm and collected, and I could see both his military and medical wheels turning at once, albeit over a Zoom conversation. He and his team were at the epicenter of the Boston Marathon bombing in 2013, and tells me how much he learned from that surreal experience. Today, we also talk about the ongoing crisis in Ukraine and how tech may not be the whole antidote here, but it definitely is a way to save lives and help many people on the ground. And just this month, Eric was selected as one of this year's George W. Bush Institute Stand to Veteran Scholars, a group of 50 national leaders who will work on key veteran issues with individual unique projects. We wish him the best of luck with this and know that undoubtedly, it will be not only innovative, but compassionate and of genuine service. So thanks for joining this conversation with Navy veteran and emergency physician, Eric Goralnik. Dr. Eric Garelnik. hello, Ron. How are you? Doing? Good, thanks. Uh, our neighbor across the street, so to speak, in uh, at the Brigham, and uh, it's really, really an honor to, to talk with you. Because, um, as I was saying before, you, you know, as you probably go through this uh, medical military career, you start, you start um, accumulating hats, and uh, I know that you do a lot of things, and really appreciate your time. You're a busy man. Well, it's great to be
1: here. Thanks for uh, your leadership uh, and your team, uh, Lucy and the Homebase team for uh, sending this message and, and over 60 podcasts. Pretty amazing.
0: Yeah, that's right. We're probably at about that right now. Yeah. And, um, you know, the podcast itself is what we call the, you know, it's sort of the audio arm of Homebase. And we, we talk about veterans issues and mental health and stigma and the need to think about reintegration and uh, how we can help veterans and military families with trauma, post-traumatic stress, mental health issues. Um, at the same time, we talk a lot on this podcast about service and about uh, people that are doing pretty cool things and great things for service and for people that have served. And so, you know, someone like yourself, as a physician and as a Navy veteran, uh, you bring a lot to this. And I kind of wanted to, I wanted to start just to get to know you a little bit more about uh, your training and uh, where uh, I know you started in U.S. Navy Academy, right? Naval Academy. Take me back there a little bit to about some of that, some of that time when you, when you thought about going into the military and, uh, and that word service and what that meant to you.
1: Yeah, I grew up in, in Los Angeles. I actually grew up in Beverly Hills. My parents are both from Massachusetts originally had moved to California um pretty early on in their marriage and uh settled in Beverly Hills because they had uh, great schools and uh when I was growing up um my dad had served in the navy he had told us stories about um uh serving the navy for a few years in San Diego and Japan and being on a ship and uh so you know, pretty early on uh had some exposure to the idea of the navy and service and um in high school uh you know found out about the service academies uh, went during a summer uh, between my junior and senior year uh, to annapolis uh, for a week i called it summer seminar and i was hooked and knew that, that was what i wanted to do and i was very focused on uh service and and what i can do to help others and felt that my uh, objective and goal was to uh, serve in the military, um, and I thought at that point make it a career.
0: Annapolis is uh, pretty amazing. I remember talking to you a few weeks ago. We visited there with my son, who's a junior in high school, and uh, I was I was taken by the culture there, and the um, and the uniforms, and people that uh, uh, were in the beginning of their training um in in the world of service and uh you met a lot of people during that time and what was the next step for you as you kind of matured within your 4 years uh at the US Naval Academy when you were graduating what what was what was on your thoughts as you became a junior in in college
1: yeah i think um you know the, the when i was a junior in, at the naval academy when i was a second class what we call it um, you know, your focus is to uh, figure out, you know, what you want to do in the Navy or the Marine Corps. About 16% of graduates from the Naval Academy go into the Marines. Uh, they're part of the Department of the Navy. And so during your summers, uh, you get to do cruises. And, uh, you know, the cruises are not like uh, Captain Stubing a Love Boat. The cruises are like uh, ships, submarines, spend time with Marine Corps, aviation to get some exposure. It's like clinical rotations in the medical world. Hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So you get an idea of what's out there. And then during uh, your final year, um, you basically apply for uh, and rank the things that you want to go into. And that's that's a combination of uh, your choice of what you'd like to do, uh, in addition to primarily your academic uh, rank, uh, your military grade. Uh, your physical fitness performance and, and conduct, right. Uh, you know, how many times did you uh, jump over the wall Saturday night and get caught? So uh, that's the combination uh, of your grades of all these things. And, um, and then come out with a service assignment on the other end.
0: And did you think about medicine in that time? At Not all? at all. No. Huh. So you're, you were setting your sights on, you did that cruise. And you, 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 at that point, you were thinking about where you would serve or where you would, where you'd be stationed. Yeah, I was,
1: I was you know, focused on. Um, I was really interested in naval special warfare, the SEALs. I was interested in surface warfare uh, ships. You know, if you probably if you asked me at different points during the naval academy, I probably had an interest in a lot of different things. And I ended up going into surface warfare um, was my interest, and so what I've moved uh, into. Um, So I did that for a couple of years. I was on a ship based out of San Diego. I continued to be interested in special warfare. And so then I I, uh, was stationed with a special boat unit uh, in uh, Panama uh, and then really became interested in medicine through my experience uh, at those two deployments where I worked with corpsmen who are the medics of the Navy and clinicians uh, and had some exposure to what they were doing and and saw there was a whole new world, and so really pivoted um, towards understanding uh, what I needed to do to, you know, apply to med school and uh, and get in.
0: Do you remember a specific time or, or person or an event or something in Panama that that made you that made it click? Maybe medicine is actually, or maybe maybe a different form of service is my next step.
1: Yeah, I think um, there were a couple deployments uh, in Panama uh, in Latin America, where, uh, working with a couple of corpsmen, uh, got to see what they were doing, you know, while we were training on, uh, riverine, uh, craft and tactics, uh, they were training on first aid and medical care and, um, you know, really, um, was striking to see, uh, what they were doing, how they were able to really support, um, growth and development and education of, uh, medical care within those communities and to me, that that really spoke to a different way that I could help and serve others. Um, uh, and so, you know, getting back to San Diego after that, uh, showed up at um, Balboa Naval Medical Center, uh, which uh, was a large uh, hospital in San Diego, and um, volunteered to be like a Red Cross volunteer and was filling out the paperwork. And I showed up in my uniform, and so there was a gentleman by the name of Lieutenant Commander Disney uh, and he was emergency medicine physician. And and so what are you doing? And I said, Oh, you know, Lieutenant Eric Relnick, and he said, Oh, come on, come on in. Why don't you just shadow me? And so I shadowed him for a bit, came back for a few shifts and, and that was it. I was hooked. And, and early thereafter, you know, got stationed in Chicago, uh, took pre-med classes at night and the weekends, another wonderful mentor, a guy by the name of Bob Chamberlain, who was, uh, used to be a CH-46 pilot. And then, Um, became a urologist was up there at Great Lakes, uh, really took me under his wing and, and, uh, yeah, lots of wonderful people along the way.
0: So, you know, it's, it's amazing how in the military world and the medical world, it's about mentors. It's about language. It's about experience, uh, acronyms, (laughs) um, a lot of different, uh, language you learn. Um, and I know that the, from a personal experience being in medicine, you know, I was in medical school, graduated in two thousand two. So it's now twenty years, where the snowball just—it's like you apply to medical school, you go to med school, you go through residency. It's the next test, the next hurdle you need to get through, and it can be—you can be very absorbed in it. What's next? The residency? What's next? Attending? But what's interesting about you is I—it it, it, doesn't—it wouldn't surprise me if some of if, if the military part of you was always there in some way, and w- what I want to know about that is sort of, as you go through medical training, when, when do you, or how do you start balancing that service and service? And, and, and I, I'm kind of wondering on a day-to-day basis now, like we're here, we are in, in, in 2022, but as you're going through it, were you all in to learn how to be a emergency physician, a doctor? And at one point, if you were all in, how did you start to incorporate the philosophy of service being in the military, connecting with that culture? How did you put it together?
1: Well, I think we're more aligned than different. Uh, hmm. You know, medicine is, and the military are both focused on service and, and service in, in different ways. And when I, uh, you know, started to pursue, medical school. Um, you know, I worked and trained recruits during the during the days and then took classes at night and then, you know, went to went to med school and, and residency and and found that, you know, I was a little older than um, most of my classmates. Um, but uh many had the same intentions. And that was just to do a little good. You know, and um you know I think through through each of these experiences, you know, residency and and uh, working as attending and, and and you know working with my teammates, it, it it is so it is so very much aligned. I mean, the mission mission is our people, right? The mission is our case of medicine. It's our patients, um, and uh, it's taking care of our patients, uh, and it's taking care of the people that take care of our patients. Right. Uh, it's really what it boils down to, and that's no different than the military, where it's really ship shipmate self, right?
0: Right. And here you are now, and I know that looking back to, I believe it was 2012, 2013. Well, we know that 2013 was the Boston Marathon bombing. And to me, that's really one of the epitome of like, there's an injury to our community. There's, a, there's terrorism right in our community. And the military side is right there. The medical side is right there. You had experience in that time. You had experience as an emergency doc for your emergency preparedness role, right?
1: Yeah, at the time I was the medical director of emergency preparedness. So um, really uh, responsible in coordination with with many uh, to prepare, respond and recovery from disasters. Whether they're events like Boston Marathon bombing or an active shooter or technological failures like information downtimes or a cyber attack or a natural weather event uh, like a hurricane or blizzard or a pandemic. Um and, and that's what we do in the emergency preparedness or emergency management field. And uh for the marathon, um, we had uh, drilled, we had done 78 drills in the five years prior to the marathon itself. Mm. And uh those drills were drills that were tabletop drills, so sitting around a table and walking through different scenarios uh, with different public safety professionals, fire, EMS, police, um, and uh healthcare facilities. Public health to think through these scenarios, and there's also the the actual functional exercises. So functional exercises, walking through and doing, you know, step by step response to uh, these different events. So uh, for the marathon bombing, again, I was one of uh, many who, who served that day, uh, and uh, initially um, was uh, near the finish line where we have a setup uh, for caring for charity runners. And then went with our team back to uh, the hospital and cared for patients uh, there within the emergency department at Brigham.
0: You were you were at the you were down there at the tent. Yeah. So we uh,
1: we actually work out of the Prudential Center. Um, There was the gym there, which uh, it was called FitCore, or I can't remember that name. So each year we would essentially have a team there of nurses and docs that provided care for the charity runners, and so. so we care you know and 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 we didn't we're not aware that something happened until people came running into the the uh the crew and then went to the site of the second um bomb and then rapidly huh. you know it's are moving off site pretty rapidly so it was pretty clear that our our greatest value would be actually getting back to the hospital uh cuz EMS uh, was really just phenomenal EMS and their volunteers you know they evacuated yeah uh, uh, incredible amount of patients in a matter of 18 minutes. So, uh, we rapidly sort of turned around, uh, you know, coordinated with EMS. The uh, they took us in an ambulance back to the hospital and then we, um, jumped right in to help.
0: No, it's amazing. That's what's eight, nine years ago now. And, uh, you know, since, since that time, you know, we've learned, we've learned a lot of, from the the military world. And I know that you were involved in uh, you've had some experience with your colleagues with stop the bleed, is that right?
1: Yes, stop the bleed. We had done some, um, you know, we had done some work sort of prior to the marathon, and certainly Boston EMS had done a lot of work around education of <coughs> emergency medical services and tourniquet application. Remember, tourniquets have, you know, in many cases were controversial, um, but we uh, <coughs> pretty soon after the marathon really conducted several debriefs uh, we got leaders from each of the level one trauma centers to you know identify and understand key leadership lessons learned uh, from those events uh, both in a qualitative way with focus groups and interviews and quantitative we listed all the injuries and the types of uh, care that they received and uh, part of the one of the key lessons learned is this idea of in many cases lay persons or public safety professionals of black tourniquets in the field Uh, So, you know, pairing with uh, Len Jacobs, who really was a pioneer for the Hartford consensus and Stop the Bleed, we started to, over the course of the next couple of years, uh, conduct research to understand how we can translate the battlefield successes, where they had a significant uh, decrease in mortality on the battlefield, about 44% with uh, tourniquet application, uh, with implementing golden hour and uh, blood resuscitation in the pre-hospital se- uh, setting or blood tra- transfusion. Um, we really were looking at ways that we can translate those lessons learned to the civilian space. So <clears throat> Stepping Strong, the Jillian Rennie Stepping Strong Center mm-hmm. for uh, which was uh, founded by uh, Jillian and her family, um, really focused on trauma care. Uh, she was a traumatic deputy from, from the Marathon Bombing. Um, they funded our first large-scale study, which was a partnership with Gillette Stadium, uh, where we were the first to demonstrate that after a one-hour course, uh, individuals, persons with no prior medical training could appropriately apply a tourniquet in the right place at the right time with the right amount of pressure. And, and that was sort of the beginning of our journey of really looking at different modalities of training uh, and scaling to the civilian society.
0: It's really amazing that, uh, you know, it's like this balance of proactive and reactive i mean you have these things, this awful thing that happened 10 years ago at sandy hook and you mentioned len jacobs was very involved in that and the hartford consensus and then then the, the marathon bombing happens and you like it's almost like these after action reports and consensus that helps people but really what you're doing is sort of proactively really looking at the next one which is kind of in a sense this with the military trains you for,
1: right yeah, I think it's a combination right you're each time you do these after action reports, it's really saying what are we going to do for the next next time as you suggest and and um it's interesting in medicine um we do do that sometimes um but probably is not as much as as we could and should uh, think about a code or resuscitation on a complex patient whether it's a medical code like a cardiac arrest or when someone's heart stops, or uh, traumatic uh, resuscitation, when multiple people are caring for a patient uh, together, um, you know, I've seen this. I try to do this um, with our colleagues uh, when we can: is to stop and take a moment and really debrief and understand, you know, what, what went well and where we can improve. And and uh, I think uh, I've seen some individuals do it really well, and some teams do it really well. Uh, but we have a lot of opportunities to really build this into the way that we work within medicine.
0: It's a it's a very interesting point. I mean, like, uh, the first thing I'm thinking about is that surgeons, this is a generalization, that surgeons do it better. We, we, what do you think? I mean, that's, so from an ER stand. well, I should say surgery versus medicine. I I think of the colleagues I work with in trauma, I think of most of them, right on the spot going cutting to the chase saying this is what we did right this is what we did wrong i think of medicine as like let's get together for a meeting let's discuss and there's a lot more detail involved and it's a root cause analysis and it's i'm totally <laughs> totally generalizing right now but i wonder about how the surgical world and the med, med- the medical the medicine world connect to that mentality and is there a difference?
1: It's a great question, and and I don't know the answer to it, but it's certainly worth investigating yeah. and trying again, right?
0: Yeah, you're a good diplomat, too. So, okay, well, you know, Eric, I mean, it's, it's, you're, you have this, you have this background of emergency, you have this background of being someone who prepares for battle and, and is uh, wearing the Navy hat, and currently, we're in this terrible crisis ever since the late February. And that's in Ukraine. So here we are basically what March, we're three months into this. And I think we, I wrote this down. We've had more than 4,000 injured. We've had more than 3,500 civilians killed and 3,000 soldiers killed, military killed in in Ukraine. And first of all, I want to thank you for all the stuff you've been doing with, with overseas. And I, There's so much we can do with technology now with um, uh, virtually, but it seems that you have you have a a real humanitarian uh, philosophy that goes back way back to when you were really a kid and thinking about service. And uh, it sort of doesn't surprise me on one level that that you're doing what you're doing now with Ukraine. And I wonder if you could tell me, you know, tell us a little bit more about that effort working virtually and also uh, where we are now.
1: Sure. So, um, you know, re- really at the outset of the war uh between Russia and Ukraine, uh, I was approached by my colleague uh, Nelia Melnichek, who is a uh a surgeon, an oncology surgeon at the Brigham. Um and she called me up and said, "What are we going to do about Ukraine to stop the bleed?" And I said, "Well, let's let's think about what we can do and and uh, we identified three really straightforward things. One is uh, make a series of videos um, to train and empower laypersons in Ukrainian, put them on YouTube and amplify them significantly so that uh, people on the ground can be empowered with these life-saving skills. Um, we had learned from you know our research from other research leaders like Craig Goolsby at uh, Uniform Services, University Sciences that you know, one way to teach this is in a classroom, but there's also other modalities like potentially learning on a phone-based application. Uh, there had not really been work on videos, uh, but we had talked about it. And, you know, we we just went for it. So the first piece we did is we developed a video. Uh, you know, the idea was on a Tuesday and we were shooting it Thursday night. And it really speaks to the, you know, selflessness of the team of healthcare. We talked about that earlier, right? Of bringing together uh, teammates from our public affairs team, from uh, the media team uh, who produced and shot the video, uh, from our simulation center who provided us access and mannequins and the resources we needed. And we were in there Thursday night and shot it. And Friday, we spent the day cutting it up and posted online, I think Friday night or Saturday. Uh, Then our media affairs team uh, really did a wonderful job of targeting ads in uh, various uh, regions within the Ukraine Um, And uh, helping really amplify this so that, you know, in pretty short order, uh, we had a significant amount of uh, views where uh, people were looking at it uh, online through the Facebook channel or Facebook ads, uh, and they were popping up. uh, And that was sort of 1.0. And from there, it really scaled to uh, reaching out uh, and having a conversation with YouTube. Uh, and Mass General Brigham, uh, there they had already had an agreement uh, doing videos on particularly health conditions, uh, but we worked out a new agreement uh, to develop uh, videos on chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear preparedness at the request of the Ukrainian Ministry of Health. <laughs> so at this point, oh, wow.
0: it's getting bigger. Jeez, yeah, I mean a bigger, a bigger uh, sort of uh, responsibility, and not just not just creating a video at the Brigham.
1: Oh yeah, well this is this is really um it's been a really tremendous team effort to get people sort of focused on you know what's important and, and getting stuff out there in a novel way um, and understanding its impact. Uh, the first uh Seaburn video um, has over 500,000 views in in Ukraine.
0: Is that the the you said the
1: 1.0 that well I'd say that's 2.0. The first yeah. one was the stop of bleed and this is the sort of the second round, which is these Seaburn videos.
0: So the first one was literally stop the bleed, a tourniquet community. How can we do what we've learned? What, what you and I were just talking about.
1: Yeah. Pressure packing and tourniquets. And we made two videos, one that was four minutes long that sort of gives the background. And then we made one that was about 35 seconds.
0: Uh-huh. And, and then this next one is you said C burn
1: chemical, biological, radiological nuclear preparedness. Oh, okay. For lay persons. And then we're we're also, um, uh, making a series for public safety professional law enforcement, fire EMS and hospital based uh, individuals. Wow. And, and so that's brought on a couple other, uh, wonderful opportunities working with the Harvard humanitarian initiative, uh, bringing the women's mass general, Boston children's, uh, and the international medical Corps. We've now just uh, recently agreed to uh, building out a series of videos, that would support on the ground training uh, by those groups that I just mentioned, including advanced trauma life support, um, trauma nursing care, pre-hospital trauma life support, uh, more CBRN training, mass casualty incident uh, training, and also stop the bleed. So with all those efforts, we're building out both on the ground training to employ a trainer effort on the ground, in addition to videos that can be used um, to prepare and also be used just in time. And We're trying to understand beyond the metrics of views. One of our efforts is really to develop um, and understand measures of effectiveness and impact. Uh, so that's where we're trying to learn from uh, individuals, educational experts, and really trying to bring together people to really see and develop impact measures.
0: Well, yeah, that's the, so. That's very. I'm very curious about how you do that. Like, and is are you looking for feedback in not only mortality but how a layperson can actually be taught and and what type of metrics would be would be would you find would be successful
1: yeah it's very difficult i think we're at the beginning of the journey i mean the first the traditional metrics are things like uh video views or impressions um you know times that you know a video would pop up on somebody's screen for example and the other way we evaluate, you know, effectiveness of these uh, educational tools is to conduct studies to measure if you watch the video, can you perform this skill? Uh, like I mentioned that prior training study we did at Gillette. Um, that's probably going to be impractical and difficult to do on the ground in Ukraine, but now we've got an opportunity to do that, um, you know, either in the United States or other places to really develop these videos, understand their impact, measure, and, and build those out it would be ideal to understand, you know, that great leap of this intervention impacts mortality. I think, I think that um, I don't have a great idea of how to measure that yet, but that's why we're going to bring a lot of yeah. brain to the table and try to work through these different measures. Yeah. Uh, the National Academy of Science, Engineering, and Medicine had done some work and published a report uh, talking about sort of web-based interventions and some of that work in that space. So we're trying to learn from, that experience and, and, and build out some programming around this.
0: Yeah. And I get, you know, what's, this is amazing work that you're doing, Eric. And when you get approach when you got approached initially by Dr. Melichick, it, it seemed you had a uh, more of a narrow focus and you had a mission. When you think about the types of traumatic injuries and illness and issues that people are going through over the last few months, you know, I'm thinking about falls and fractures and brain injury and Spinal cord injury, thinking about infections, uh, so the list goes on. So, how do you sieve through that? And and you know, how does one even start knowing? Uh, how, how does that process work? Uh, in other in other words, like th- what the need is before you actually implement and create content?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think these first cases were really requests from Ukraine um, directly, and now when we think about the bigger picture, you know, certainly think about refugees in conflict. Uh, You know, over a million lives are lost every year uh, due to conflict uh, across the globe. And uh, and beyond that, if you think about refugee care and the number of displaced refugees in Ukraine and Eastern Europe, let alone the Middle East and Afghanistan, for example. So uh, there's real opportunity to think through uh, conducting needs assessments, partnering with real trust brokers, community leaders to try to understand what the needs are and developing a trusted content that uh, has open access uh and really helps develop this ability to have Equitable access to you know high value uh, knowledge-based information hmm. for the public uh, and really sort of change the paradigm of, of how we think about information and and you know many people have done this many people have worked on this in a variety of different ways um, but think about CPR, for example, right? Number one killer uh, in the world is, is, is heart disease, right? And so, um, when we think about uh, CPR, uh, in fact, there are not many cases where laypersons provide CPR uh, in the field. Uh, and uh, despite all the efforts of, you know, wonderful efforts of American Red Cross, AHA, et cetera, uh, there's a bit of a disconnect. And uh, many of the challenges that uh, individuals have uh, stated for through a variety of different studies, whether they're based on viewing social media or interviews or focus groups or surveys, uh, it takes time to take CPR courses, right? Um, Even if you can do them online, it takes time to do that. Uh, There's also the concern about confidence uh, around uh, performing these skills. And so can we rethink the way that we educate the public, not just for coursework but just in time right yeah. so training that it actually in the in in a real time in the moment uh how can we reinforce this and support that and it's not solely with mechanisms like uh, YouTube videos but really think about uh you know voice uh, platforms so if, you know whether it's Siri or uh, Alexa and how we can really optimize those types of technologies to coach individuals during crisis whether it's CPR or a trauma, uh or uh Narcan and you know naloxone opiate reversal a lot of different use cases that really we could think about this
0: not to mention TikTok for the younger folks or for any folks i mean that's
1: oh totally TikTok yeah that that sec- second video we made that that was the idea i said you know uh i i don't have a TikTok account but uh i set one up uh and said you know how do we make this one sort of fast and furious 30 seconds Lots of visuals, uh, and that was you know how we're learning. yeah, uh, you know, yeah, nice you know it's
0: over the last uh we've trained around the same time, but over the last what fifteen years or so it's it's amazing people are learning procedures through YouTube and they were never available when we were you know just you know basically going through books and uh, classic classic uh, see one do one teach one. but the uh, the opportunity that was given you, through this, unfortunately through the war, is really gonna help so many other people that are not even involved in this conflict. And I think that that's, that's the whole idea of turning something helpful and uh, turning something into the positive from uh, from some of these tra- some of this trauma. And what about the, uh, so the black box of the invisible wound. So stress, post-traumatic stress, even brain injury is that is that the next frontier or are you sort of concomitantly working with others as far as this ukrainian crisis
1: yeah it's a great question and it gets to this sort of needs assessment uh clearly there's going to be a significant um is a significant uh you know mental health uh, impact on the ukraine eastern europe the globe um as a result of this conflict um and you know, early on, I've had some discussions with colleagues uh, here at the Brigham and at, at MGH about you know the ways that we can think through uh, to help tackle this, and I've had some conversations uh, with some uh, non-governmental organizations, and we haven't um, started any efforts in that space. But there's clearly a need, um, and there's a lot of brainstorming a lot of goodwill to try to advance this work.
0: Yeah, I mean, as you know, some of the stuff we know from the 20-year post 9/11. There's post-traumatic stress can not only rear its, can rear its head five, 10 years later, even not just immediately. And so, you know, wearing the home base hat, thinking about your comrades, your fellow veterans and others, um, kind of switching gears a little bit. How is that in your, in your military circles, uh, as far as what's going on, it's probably a big question, but as far as what's going on overseas, is that triggering? Is that something that, you know, any, friends and colleagues are going through. Yeah,
1: it's interesting. Um, you know, there's a lot of triggering obviously with uh the withdrawal from Afghanistan, lots of discussions around Ukraine. People respond in a variety of different ways. Uh I, you know, many have stepped up and many have wanted to get involved and figure out ways that they can be helpful. And that's for veterans and non-veterans, right? I mean, people have really Come out of um, all different channels to to be helpful in a variety of ways for our C-bernie videos, the chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear videos. Uh, we form this advisory group where we have you know representatives from across the country that are helping and uh, giving advice on each one of the scripts we generate and each one of the videos we make. And so it's really it's really uh, impressive. So I think you know there's a fair amount of uh, of uh, goodwill out there, but particularly around. Uh, You know, are these events triggering? Um, You know, I've had a few conversations, certainly with uh, some of our veterans within our community, Um, and and the interesting thing is, so far, most of them have really said, "How do I help? Right? Right. How do I get involved?
0: Right? That natural uh, instinct, more common than not, yeah." And you're involved in the Harvard community as far as the it's the civilian military collaborative.
1: Yeah, we started that. you're the lead doc for that. Yeah, we started that in like 2015. Essentially, when I got here in 2010, you know, found out about there's a really robust Harvard veterans community. Mo- the activity really is based on the Cambridge side of the Charles, um, either at the Kennedy School or the undergraduate school. Uh, business School has a really uh, terrific group and um, you know, a lot of activity in that space, um, but there wasn't much in Longwood. Right there wasn't much around uh, Brigham, uh, at Children's, at the School of Public Health, etc. Bi and started to you know explore and, and talk to others and and you know get involved in med school. Got connected to some veterans, our student or our um, first starting with residents who were uh, veterans or those going in health professions, services, scholarships, uh, and then you know started conversations with the medical school and. Uh, you know, people like ed hunter the dean of students or dean of education and, and Fidencio saldana has been incredibly supportive of saying just go for it so you know we started this group um, includes students from the medical school we've got students from the school of public health the dental school um, and really it, it it's you know a student-driven organization that um, has you know a few core missions one is to have a community right to have social get-togethers and outlets. Um, for uh, veterans, for those going to the military to have a conversation, uh, because there, there is that civilian-military divide. There is that challenge of transitioning from military to civilian world. And so providing just, you know, a, for an opportunity to get together and, and, and BS and, and, and talk to each other. And that's number mm-hmm. one. Two is connecting mentors and mentees. So uh, we've got some terrific faculty who are veterans uh, and those who, again, are, are they may not be veterans, but they're supportive of this work. Uh, And they're mentoring and connecting them with students to mentor them on either projects or, you know, again, get together socially, whatever it may be. Right. So that's the second bucket is mentorship. And the third is is a lectureship series, which uh, we have where we invite different people to come in and talk. And we've had some wonderful speakers over the years. Um, And what's exciting is in 48 hours, we're going to have the uh, annual commissioning, which is Hmm. Uh, after the graduation at, uh, the medical school and, uh, dental school, uh, we'll have a commissioning of, uh, four, uh, students, uh, this year, um, to medical school to dental school, uh, with their families last year was hybrid and, and this year will be hybrid again. So it's a really nice event uh, where we can celebrate, uh, their service and their family's commitment.
0: Well, it's great. It's full circle. I mean, what we, what we started talking about with you, you know, you as a, you know, an up and coming military into medical uh, training guy who like, you know, when you talk about the divide, I mean, people like you and Dave King at MGH and others, I think are the ones that can really show how they're interlaced and can connect the two worlds rather than, you know, have the narrative of division. So that's really special for the, I think the mentorship is, is a huge part of this. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of MGH, you—I uh, got connected with you through Jerome, through uh, uh, Dr. Jerome Lee, who is a great uh, colleague and friend at MGH.
1: Yeah. Well, Jerome, um, you know, Jerome is a go-getter. He's uh, really started some really interesting work. He had been doing some uh, telemedicine work, and um, you know, he's a unique individual, critical care trained, Mercy Medicine. Right. You know, really a thought leader in this space, and so he's been. You know leading some work with regard to telemedicine uh, support services for Ukraine and also with the Department of Defense you know prior to this so you know it's just uh it's wonderful to be in this community where uh there are so many uh individuals who are so focused and so dedicated that you know you just have to call them up and and answer almost always is where and when right when people people want to jump in
0: talk about that family right it's uh you become brothers and sisters probably clo- uh sooner than you would think. And you get people that are uh that are connected that will will come to you. But I I, I speaking of family though, I want to talk about for a few minutes, um you and uh and and you have Ukrainian you are uh you you have Ukrainian descent. Yeah so my my uh grandfather
1: uh was uh Ukrainian is what I understand. Um Fortunately, he passed away uh, a ways back, but that has been, you know, my connection. Um, but the reality is, I didn't, I didn't really need any particular connection to try to be helpful.
0: Right. It's a, it's a, an interesting coincidence. Of course, um, my family goes back to that area as well in Eastern Europe and uh, in Belarus as well, actually in Russia. And so, it, 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 it is this sort of interesting to think about. How just in the scheme of just a couple hundred years, what changes and how you're how people are just people and they're connected, whether the, you know, whether it's in your blood or not, the fact that you're uh you're reaching back out to that community is just incredible. You know, the amount of YouTube views uh is only gonna rise for fortunately and unfortunately. <laughs> and um I think that you know what what you're able to do to combine your mel- your your military background and your medical at the same time really serves uh, so many people, Eric. And so I want to know what's next for you too. Uh, you uh, not that that's not enough. You got a lot on your plate now, but what what is what do you think is next for you uh, as in your career?
1: You know, it's interesting. You asked me at the beginning of the podcast about you know what drove me to service, and you know the thing that the thing that drove me to service and drives me today and will drive me in the future is. When I was in Hebrew school uh, in Los Angeles, my Hebrew school teacher uh, told us about her experience in a concentration camp and being liberated by an American soldier. Uh, and uh, I knew at that point that uh, I had a duty to serve, um, and that was you know service in the military, uh, serve uh, my you know uh, my fellow uh, men and women. Um, uh, out there in any way that I could, and so uh, that being said, what's the future look like? Um, I really try to do my best when presented with you know a problem, uh, a challenge, uh, and just take it on. And and um, I think you know over the years I could not have really um, projected I would have gone left or right. Uh, I just go to where. Uh, people are in pain, um, try to be helpful, I think as many of us naturally do. So uh, I'm not sure what's next. I, I would say that, um, you know, at the heart of me is this, uh, you know, again, commitment to service, uh, commitment to, you know, particularly um, uh, underserved uh, communities and emergency care. Uh, and so our, you know, veterans in our military communities. So uh, whatever way, uh, the wind is going to take me, that's where I'm going to go.
0: Amazing. Well, your kids seven and four, right. They got a great mentor right there. And, uh, you know, look forward to keeping in touch and thank you so much for talking with me today.
1: Ron, thanks so much. Really, really appreciate your time. And, uh, thanks for leading us on these podcasts. Really amazing work.
0: Many thanks to our guest, Dr. Eric Grelnick, for all your service in and out of the hospital and in and out of the country. We look forward to updates on whatever's coming next just around the corner from us at Home Base and through your new work with the George W. Bush Institute. By the way, this coming July 30th is the 13th annual Run to Home Base. Please join us in person or virtually. There's still time to sign up. Go to runtohomebase.org. Homebase Nation is the official podcast for the Homebase program for veterans and military families. Please listen and follow us on Apple, iHeart, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow Homebase on social media at Homebase Program. This episode was produced, edited, and engineered by Lucy Little. I'm Ron Hirschberg. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.